0: Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Episode 8 of Education Suspended. We have a really fun interview with, uh, for you today. We get to sit down with our friend, Dr. Bruce Perry. Now, I wanna be very transparent with everybody. We went in with the full intentionality of diving into his new book, which is titled, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience and Healing, which is co-authored with Oprah Winfrey. Um, but we kind of go all over the map, but it's a really good episode. Um, actually, Dr. Perry and Steve have been friends for over 53 years. And we jump into their experience in school. Um, Dr. Perry teaches us about dissociation. He talks about this this concept called post-traumatic wisdom, which I think is a really good thing to be learning about um, as we are slowly unwinding from COVID and what this is gonna mean for us as a system next year. I also do wanna give a quick shout out to Silverton School. I'm actually up in Silverton, Colorado. Um, So thanks to their admin and their staff for giving me the space to record this episode. Um, And I'll just, put a little plug. If you happen to be in Colorado, come up to Silverton. It's a beautiful town um, and an awesome community. So here is episode eight of Education Suspended with Dr. Bruce Perry. Enjoy, everybody. All right, here we go. Welcome, Dr. Perry, to Education Suspended. We're excited to have you here. We hear you're a little busy these days, so we're grateful for your time. <laughs> Just a little busy. Um So we have a ton to talk about today. We're going to try to be as focused as possible, but we start all of our podcasts the same. So if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our listeners, telling folks what you do, um, and then we really enjoy, but you don't have to, if you would share a little bit about maybe your own educational experience as as a student, what was school like for you, and if that impacts you or influences you in any of the work that you do now.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, my name is Bruce Perry, and uh, I'm very happy to be here with my friends, Jessica and Steve, uh, and my new friend, Jamie. Um, I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and I have been studying the impact of experiences, both good and bad, on development for 35 years. And that has... Brought me into uh, the educational world and the child welfare world, the juvenile justice world, and obviously the mental health world. Uh, and I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Awesome. Now, just a little backstory, Steve. I don't know if you want to say it, but you you two grew up together, and went to school together.
1: Is... yeah
2: and, and I, I'm gonna hit I'm gonna hit him right away with what, what, what when I was writing things down for Bruce I just wrote single words and I'm gonna I'm gonna test his memory because my word for Bruce as a student well I have a few but uh, my best word <laughs> I can see he's a little nervous is curiosity hmm. and Bruce, was absolutely the most curious friend I had. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll associate that with a quick little story. Can you think of six high school jockey kind of athletes showing up on Wednesday night at the public library just to hang out and do research? That that actually happened. And that's because of Bruce and and one of our other Steve friends who were uh, reading Scientific American in seventh grade and the rest of us are reading Archie. So um, I I, my first question is how he he came by that intellectual curiosity, which Mm -hmm. you always had, my friend. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I have to say, I think that's 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 pretty spot on. I was I was as a student, I was way more curious than studious. And as you might imagine, that can sometimes lead to problems. And so, <laughs> I remember when I, uh, I in the fourth grade, I actually went to public schools in Bismarck, North Dakota, and and I had a great education. They were, you know, by and large, really good teachers, invested in kids, good infrastructure, great friends, healthy communities. I mean, we were we were lucky, and um, yeah, and I I had some really standout educators. And then I had some that were not so standout. and I have to say, one of the most, uh, one, and this is going to sound terrible, but one of the one of the weirdest experiences as a little kid for me was in the fourth grade when I realized that I think I'm smarter than my teacher, <laughs> <laughs> and it was unsettling.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, and part of the reason I felt that was that, and again, this was sort of this innocent kid-like curiosity that like hey that's not right (laughs) you know this is what's right and i just got squished um and it happened on a history test and i they she wanted to you know they asked about the i have no idea it was you know about the alamo and the texas independence and so i happened to know santa anna's full name because i just read one of those american heritage books about uh, the Mexican American war. And she, I, so I put in like his full name and she counted it wrong. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not wrong. That's right. And, uh, and, and she counted and, and she, and I tried to prove it when she took the book and she threw it down. And she said, that is not correct. I don't care what this book says. That is not the right answer. Wow. And, and I, right then I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> like, there's something wrong here, you know? And I realized that I had sort of, I had kind of embarrassed her in front of the other kids. And that, re- that, that resulted in this response. And honestly, that reaction really did influence the way I functioned all the way through my educational experience. And what I realized was that it's not smart, it, it, it's not in your interest in a group that you tell people that you're smarter than other people. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help you out. You know, you're not going to, you know, it's probably good to be under the radar. It's better to, you don't always need to say everything, you know, you know, sometimes it's just don't say it just that's wrong, but sometimes you should just let it go. Yeah. And that's has served me well because as both of you, you know, you guys know that, our work, because we all work together, our work is challenging the teachers in our field. And if you go at them directly and say, you're wrong, and here's the research, they will use the power of their systems to squish you. But if you kind of finesse the way you help them come to understand that what they're saying is not accurate and that maybe this other thing is helpful, you're gonna get further Um, anyway. So I learned that early on in my educational experience. And the other thing I learned is that um, I just learned the power of of books. I mean, I love books. I remember going, I I just, I, (laughs) I read every single book in the Bismarck public library that was in my little section for like third graders. And, and, and then when I, I remember that I, uh, went to middle school and I looked at all the books and I realized, Oh my God, I can't read all these books. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I came to, I loved books because I dissociated a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, Here's what happened. I had asthma, really bad as a kid. And I ended up in the hospital a lot. And I, and you know, back then, you know they put you in an oxygen tent and you're isolated for a week at a time. And it turns out that um, my physician found out that I sort of had allergy, you know among the other things, but sort of allergy induced asthma. So they did these allergy tests where they do these little cuts on your back and then they put the different things in. And I was allergic to all these things. And so what they, the treatment, and I'm not sure if they would still do this, but the treatment was that they would inject you with low levels of all these allergens uh, twice, uh, twice a week. And they would put two shots in each arm twice a week. And so I would ride my bicycle down in the fourth and the fifth grade and the sixth grade. I would ride my bicycle down every week uh, to the library and, or to, to the clinic and get two shots in each arm. And then I would go to the library and get books. And I, 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 I didn't have like a backpack or anything. So I would take the books and I'd stuff them into my shirt. And then I'd tuck my shirt in really tight. And so, I, you know, I'd ride home with a big bulge of books in my belly. And then I'd take the books and I'd, and I'd read them. And every, you know, every week I'd get a whole new batch of books. And I just, I just read voraciously. So, and that was something that they're in the fourth grade this may not you probably did the same thing too steve they had this level system or different color levels you'd read and get to the sra oh that's what it was sra and i just i was so psyched that i was like going through the, the different levels and getting to the top levels and Neil Dyer was at a higher level than I was. You remember Neil? I don't know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I was like, I got to get Neil Dyer. I got to get Neil Dyer. (laughs) I can't remember if I got him or not. I probably didn't. Then I would have remembered it. (laughs) But So that's my, you know, I had a great education.
0: Yeah. So I actually, I like that you talked about that concept of curiosity, because I think one thing that we're becoming more attuned to is just, I don't know, maybe this reality that, you know, obviously curiosity kind of sparks us learning, but curiosity is also a privilege, right? Like all kids don't show up to school being able to be curious for whatever Mm -hmm. reasons. So I'm wondering if you can talk about like, what, what's necessary for a kid to be able to, to do that? Um, I don't know if that question even makes sense, but
1: no, it makes a lot of sense. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, you probably have talked about state-dependent functioning on this call, right? That
0: and, and roundabout ways with different yes.
1: Yeah. So let me just give you just a simple um, thumbnail sketch here. The, the brain is, the top part of the brain's cortex, you know, and you have probably talked about that. The cortex is a part of your brain involved in thinking, planning, reading, all, all of the kind of uniquely human attributes are mediated by this top part of your brain and whenever somebody feels any form of stress distress dysregulation hunger thirst cold yep. you know worried about their parents you know worried about being safe on the way to school worried about failing not doing well in school that shuts down parts of the cortex particularly parts of the cortex that are that are involved in kind of feeling comfortable with novelty and curiosity is really seeking out novelty. Yeah. And so when you feel threatened in any way, the last thing you want to do is introduce more unpredictability, more novelty. So curiosity is, emerges from a privileged experience where there's been a sense of safety, predictability, comfort, and, and regulation. And I, I, I had that. And I think a big part of my ability to stay regulated was because I was really into sport. You know, we ran everywhere. I mean, I rode my bike, ran, uh, swam. Um, You know, every time, either after school, we'd either be playing together, pick up basketball or kick the can, or we'd be in an organized sport by the time we got to middle school. And always doing these pattern repetitive motor regulatory things. And that, I think that that facilitated my capacity to stay curious.
0: That's a really good point. So I think the other piece that stands out then from your story, just especially like even that interaction with your teacher, right, is, and even before, before you hopped on this call, we were preparing a little bit. And I asked Steve, I was like, how many years had you been in teaching before you heard something about the brain, right? And essentially it heard you at a conference and he's like, I had been teaching for 30 years. Wow. And And for me, when I start presentations at conferences, that's usually the first question that I ask is like, how many of you in this room of 200 have had any courses on brain development, how the brain processes, and you maybe get five hands? Hmm. So I think there's this theme of a lot of the things that we experience, and I'm not trying to make excuses, but there's a lot of they're not there's not intention behind <laughs> what they're doing, right? Like, I don't think teachers are intentionally trying to make environments not, uh, you know, maybe ideal for learning. They just don't know better.
1: They don't know, yeah.
0: And I think you recently um, did that interview for Southwest by Southwest. And I think one of the things that I love that you said is like, you know, in particular in in education systems that we need to become more science literate, right? And I'm wondering like, what, what does that look like to get this to educators? And I don't know, Grainer, if you want to hop in because this was—I mean, your story was so cool about like, whoa, this is this is insanity that no one taught this to me.
2: Well, I'll, I'll you know, that's exactly how I felt, and you know, it was, it was really interesting going to the conference. Bruce is speaking, and at first, I'm nervous for Bruce because he's my friend, and that lasted about five minutes, and then, then I'm nervous for myself because I'm going, I don't know any of this, and. It's not embarrassing. It was just enlightening. And I I didn't know it because I didn't know it. I mean, that's the oldest saying in the book. But when I heard it, and I just, even the little bit that Bruce just explained to us now, understood the brain was more than just one big cortex and that there were lower systems in the brain that really mattered to how the cortex would work. I, I thought, I took them home. And sat with my wife, and we didn't even feed them. We gave them a cup of coffee in three hours, and uh, and that was was good coffee. Though it was was really really good coffee, wasn't it, Bruce? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you know, at the end of the night, we just said, "Hey, this belongs in schools," because I don't think we know this. And that's kind of how we started a new a new kind of branch of what the neurosequential model was already. 20 years in the making, I, I'm guessing. I don't, Bruce, you can help me with the years, but.
1: Yeah, one way or another. I mean, we didn't really call it that, but early on, that's what we were, we were doing the, the work. Um, you know, I, it's interesting, Steve, because I, and again, back to your question, Jessica, about where does my curiosity come from? I, I think a lot of it came from my my, my dad. Um, he was an, incre- he's probably the, one of the smartest guys that I knew he would but he was really curious about the natural world. He loved to hunt and fish. And sort of that wore off on my brother, who became an outfitter and a, um, and a guide. And But we would, you know, from the time I was a little kid, we were cleaning animals and curious about what's inside the body and, you know, looking at brains. And so it, it, it just, you know, I know this sounds very simplistic, but the idea that there was something complex inside of the body that was responsible for the bird flying or the bird you know the 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 grains go here and then this is where poop comes out and you know all that stuff when you're a little kid you go oh look how you work it's sort of like kids that are curious about how things work but I had that biological opportunity to kind of see that because I was grew up hunting and fishing and I really do think that And again, the interesting thing about that is it's so much of hunting and fishing is about animal behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, When do they eat? You know, when are you going to find them? Where do they walk? Why do they walk here? You know, all, all of those things that have to do with recognizing the relationship between current functioning and the history, you know, what happened to this animal? Why are these deer jumpy? And why are those deer completely ignorant? Well, those deer grew up in a a place, a national park, where you can't hunt. And they know, they literally come to know that they go right up to the border of the national park, and then they don't go any further. Because that's over there, there's a lot of noises and bad things happen. And it's just the fact that animals can learn that's pretty crazy. but.
0: Yeah, we interviewed a gentleman by the name of Bucky Flores a while ago who teaches up in Minnesota. And he said something very similar about his work with nature. And he had worked with eagles um, forever about how like that behavioral component how he understood animals by learning more about the brain. He's like, oh my gosh, like this is very translatable to our work in schools. And then he became curious. I think that's the other piece that's coming up for me is like, In some ways, I feel like we take kind of curiosity away from these teachers, right? It's just like we just do the same thing over and over. And my experience is when I start talking about the brain to teachers, it's like the spark lights, and everyone's like, "I, I want more. I need more," because it really influences the work that I do.
1: Well, look at Steve. I mean, Steve here—he is. He's not only—he's not a young teacher, right? He's not—he's an older, experienced teacher, and he hears about this, and then his curiosity. Led to him sort of yeah. creating this whole direction in our field.
0: Yeah. See, I told you, Grainer. I said you were the spark that kind of started bringing this to, to teachers.
1: It was. Still is.
0: Yeah, 100%. 100%.
2: Well, I'll thank you for that. But I think we just start calling him Sparky. Sparky.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. We got, all on. right, Sparky. <laughs> H- henceforth, Sparky. <laughs>
2: oh. I love um. You know, I, I just I, I we've got to just hang a little longer on Bruce's dad name Dunk, Duncan, but
1: no.
2: we all called him Dunk, dunk. and uh, such a such a it, one of the words I wrote down. I said I, I wrote 10 words I wanted to bring up to Bruce. One of them was just dunk. Um, and I would like to know, you know, you often talk about associations and, and the power of association. And and relationship. I, I think the cornerstone of our model is relationship. Right. Um, but but I think some of that comes from him. I, I just like to, if there's just even a few minutes yeah. more to
1: elaborate on the <coughs> power of your father in that regard. He, I think you're right. He was he's actually way more social than I was. I mean, he he was gregarious. Um, he really loved, he was a dentist, but he was incredibly socially comfortable engaging love to talk to people um you know he's just a really you know he's one of these kind people and he was funny i mean he was really very very funny and i think i got my sense of humor from him you know without
2: a doubt and i i'm glad i'm glad you're acknowledging that for anyone listening to this who knows him
1: (laughs) yeah and So he he was just really always doing little practical jokes and, you know, funny stuff. And He used to have this practical joke thing with different people. They'd go back and forth. And one year, the person who was pranking him sent out a semi-formal invitation to a holiday party that was going to be at my parents' house. And (laughs) uh, it... It wasn't. So all the people showed up at, at, at my parents' house, dressed up for this holiday party. No. And my parents, aunt, my dad answers the door in his robe. And I don't, you've seen Dunk in his robe. It's like, yeah. you don't want to see that. <laughs> so my dad is like, okay, I'll get back at this. So what he did is he, at the end of the holiday season, he took out an ad in the Bismarck Tribune in the paper and said that, um, that, for every Christmas tree that you will leave at this address and and so literally hundreds of Christmas trees were dumped on the front yard of this guy and people would go to the door and say we want to you know we're here we brought our tree can we have $2 and (laughs) nobody got any money but they weren't going to pick their tree up and put it back. So this guy ended up with like 150 Christmas trees on his front yard. (laughs) Uh, That's, that's my dad. It was kind of funny.
2: That's genius.
1: But, but he also super
2: generous guy as, as you are. Um, And he reached out to marginalized people. And I, I, I wouldn't consider myself a marginalized person at the moment, but he once offered to fill my tooth for free if I would not take Novocaine and, uh, Okay, that's one of the dumbest things I ever did in my life. But I got a free filling, and I've uh, now I want Novocaine gas and anything else they'll give me to knock okay. me out. But that was dunk. Yeah, sure come on, Renner, just I'll fill see, your table.
1: Yeah, just to see if you could do
2: it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but that's you, you know you, he was generous much beyond what, what what I'm saying. I think.
1: Yeah, he was. He was very generous, and he and he had a really a big heart. For we lived in an area where. Um, a lot of the kind of the first nations people, the native American population there's a reservation that was pretty close to where we lived. And there were a lot of struggling uh, people who came from the reservation and um, he always was giving them, you know, when they came in with a toothache, he would put them to the front of the line take care of them. And, you know, it's, it it was really heartbreaking for a lot of those families. So, but, you know, it it was a, He's a generous guy.
2: Maybe if you don't mind, that's a perfect segue for another thing I really wanted to ask you about. And that is how you seem to have been strongly influenced by indigenous culture. And it was one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, and J- Jamie taught me how to say Maori. So that that culture, um, that that's really one of the sweetest parts of the book, to me, in my opinion. Yeah. But I, I I was curious, as like, how how did that come about? I,
1: I thought maybe it had a little bit to do with your dad, but I think it did. It, there's it a did. Lot to it. it did. You know, it started actually when uh, uh, my dad. We used to go hunting, and we would go down to the reservation, and we would hunt on, you know, the land of some of the families down there. So we got to know some of the families and, um, and I, you know, I got to know them as a kid gets to know them, you know, my dad talks with them and introduces me and I kind of stand there look like an idiot, you know? And, uh, and so, but as I got older, there was a time when one of these, uh, a gentleman who, who was a, a First Nations, I, I use that term because it's a Canadian term, but it, it's a Native American gentleman who was Lakota. Uh, I was taking a bus up to visit my uncle in Grand Forks. And this Lakota man who actually was an elder um, was also taking the bus. And we were just milling around and my dad knew him and he decided that he was going to, you know, sit with me on this bus. So that was the first time I had a lot of person to person communication and conversation with somebody who was an elder. And, um, you know, it started out kind of awkward, um, the conversation, but that's a long drive and, you know, uh, By the end of it, we were having some really interesting conversations, mostly about animals. And and I loved animals and that kind of stuff. And and, and he basically invited me to uh, come to a a powwow. And so when I was in high school, I ended up going to a powwow. That was held out at this. There's a place in our town where there's. It's called the United Tribes. There are multiple tribes: the Hidatsa, Mandan, Lakota. Um, I think it's the Yeah, and and they they have this little co- kind of a college, and they have a lot of other cultural events. And so, they had a pow out there, and I went, and um, you know they were very generous and invited me in, and uh, I I just watched, and that was it's. It's an interesting process that these, by and large, the very generous people, if you show respect, and very generous with sharing their why they dance this way, and and you know people would come and offer me food, and then they'd say what they're saying when they would be singing. They said he just said this, and that's what they're saying, and so you know they kind of took me under their wing, and and for that afternoon, I just found that fascinating, and. um and then I started to read a lot about um, what is out there and what was written by uh, a couple of different people. George Bird Grinnell is actually uh, a Cheyenne cultural anthropologist that was trained at Yale and wrote about his people and and he and there are, are some other there's a number of other things that I read. And so over the years, I ended up getting to being very, very interested in this, and it, my my real interest grew when I learned uh, hypnosis and I began to recognize that a lot of the induction techniques that help people get into this deep dissociative state um, are very similar to many of the rituals and ritualistic practices that are used both by what I knew about West African practices and Plains tribe practices. And then over time, as I get older, uh, you know, I I spent more more and more time with um, different cultures and communities. I spent a, uh, I still have really strong working relationships with people who are Aboriginal, uh, and continue to learn from Aboriginal elders. and And uh, I don't have any current real direct connections with Maori folks, but for a, a long time that they were my primary teachers about. Uh, and their their practices related to rhythm and relationship and their belief system and stuff. So that's where a lot of that stuff. When I was in Alberta, I was um, I was basically uh, given name had a naming ceremony and was <clears throat> in, in invited to to be part of a, a band of Cree uh, outside of Edmonton, and then. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then as you know, um Shelly and, and Moses, uh who are Blackfoot. Well, Shelly's not Blackfoot, but she but she's lives with the Blackfoot community. They they um are both elders and have asked me uh, you know, they've given me a name and I've had a naming ceremony with them. And so I continue to learn from them. It's it's pretty cool. I mean it's I I, I think I think sort of the big sort of inflection point in that was I was kind of learning on myself and learning informally, but I was really embraced by a Cree community when I was asked by the government of Alberta to go with the head of their mental health programs to go. They'd been invited by it's long history, but basically the indigenous communities everywhere are, are, have been treated with continuing patronizing colonial practices and even to this day. And, and so when I first went to Alberta to work there, there was a province-wide early childhood and brain development initiative where they wanted me to go into the Cree community and, and teach them how to be good parents. <laughs> like. That's awfully arrogant. And I'm like, well, I'll go meet them. So it turns out that the the head of like the province wide head of the whole mental health thing. And then I were invited by the elders to go to uh, meet with them about this. And now I was much more familiar with sort of traditional practices and that kind of stuff than he was, he was sort of a corporate, he was a nice guy, but he was typically thinking like, from the Western perspective that our meeting is at noon, and it's going to be two hours long, and then I'm going to drive back to Edmonton, and I go out there, and uh, we go to the place we're supposed to meet, which is at the council center, and nobody, people are just milling around, nobody's really there, and he's like, pissed. Because it's like, hey, you know, I'm really important and you're not here. And uh, little by little, you know, an elder comes in and he's really nice, wants some coffee. And, you know, why, let me show you around. And he's just getting more and more irritable and antsy. And after about an hour, you know, maybe 1, one fifteen, they get together and they sit down. The elders sit in a circle. And it's traditional for them to basically have this process where everybody kind of talks but they talk as much as they want. And then the next person talks as much as they want. And they go around a circle. And time goes by. And finally, this guy gets up and says, you know, this has been wonderful. But, uh, you know, I need to get back to Edmonton. And, and, of course, it was incredibly offensive for him to do this. And I said, well, I'm going to stay. And he's like, well, how are you going to get back? I said, well, I'll figure it out. <clears throat> so he left. And I just stayed the whole time. Now, they, you know, they didn't know what to make of that, really. But we went through this process and, you know, I asked a few questions and, and they and then everybody kind of left. And I'm in the middle of nowhere, no car, it's winter. And I'm like, well, <laughs> and then, of course, they they're laughing, right? They're like, how's this white boy going to get home? know. <laughs> So they kind of leave and they're like watching, what's he gonna do? So I just kind of settle in and I just sit down on one of these folded chairs and I get some coffee and I kind of look around and 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 then one somebody comes in and says, Where how are you gonna get home? I said, I don't know. I said, I'll figure it out. I said, I'll be I'll be good. And and they said, Well, you probably should come and get something to eat with us. And I said, okay. So they went and I went and ate with one of the families and then they had all their buddies come over like, Hey, we got this white kid here. You know, (laughs) listen to what we did to him. You know, (laughs) and they're all laughing, you know, and pretty soon we're all laughing and everybody else. They're like, you got to have better boots to walk all the way to Edmonton. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's going to be a long walk. I said, well, why don't you start that walk in the morning? you can stay with us. Mm. And so I spent the oh night my. with one of the families. Wow. And the next day they they this by then I was like I, they were laughing with me and I, and I was one of the you know they they liked me. And we had lots of great conversations and and about noon one of them says, "Well, I was going to go to the Walmart in Edmonton. You want to ride?" I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> and but you know what I did? I didn't, I wasn't pushing them. I wasn't pressing them to go. I was, and I, the fact that I just knew, I just kind of trusted that they were, they were going to take care of me. They weren't going to let me freeze, walk into Edmonton. So. Um, you lean into um, the relationship. Yeah. And then after that, it was like, after that I started to get invitations to go to every, you know, first nations band in British Columbia and all through Alberta. I still do. And, um, wow. and I've had many, many opportunities to, to learn from uh, those communities. Is
2: that, yeah, go ahead, oh, Steve. go ahead, go ahead, Jessica. I'll, I, I just, when I, when I hear that, I, I, and I'm now associating it with your teaching on implicit bias and the necessity for all of us to expand our catalog of experience. I'm gonna use your exact words, I think, yeah. um, which I steal virtually every day um carry on that that seems a great a a, a great illustration of that um but is any more comment on that and how how
1: much that matters I, i think it's everything i mean i really think if you don't if you can't handle the discomfort of of being in an uncomfortable new situation where you're not quite familiar with everything and you don't know their, the way they do stuff or you, the way they cook macaroni is a little different than the way you cook macaroni. If you can't handle those little discomforts, those little moderate stressors, you're not going to expand your comfort zone. But as we have talked about before, you know what we know is that stress is not bad. Discomfort is not something to be afraid of if you can have you build you grow you become resilient and you expand your your comfort zone and you increase your catalog if you're willing to have these moderate but predictable stressors that come from difficult conversations about race or you know being introduced to the way they like to have meetings you know and it was completely you know that's not a style of having meetings that we're used to but that's the way they have meetings you know they have they literally it's like we're having the meeting on wednesday and everybody knows kind of you show up around noon people eat and you know when we all decide kind of by this weird non-spoken consensus then we'll circle up and then we'll do our work and it might end at four it might end at seven. You know you know it, it just it's the kind of thing that if you lean into the relationship like Jessica says it's everything's be, gonna be fine and and you learn you grow and it but if you don't, you don't grow and and you keep separate he the man I, and I like the man he's a nice guy, but he he didn't expand his understanding of those folks and and because of that he was never able to communicate with them they never trusted him and in the efforts to make things better between the province and the and the the band never took place
0: I'm also wondering if if you know which we're not going to be able to do what if we were to to learn more about his background right like you and sharing about your family had such a rich association about the power of relationships about you know, connecting with those that are different and that differences are good. It makes us stronger. And I'm curious as to maybe his associations were, were totally different.
1: Yeah. Well, clearly they were right. I mean, and and that's, I think that Jessica, that's such a good point that. And again, it's easy, it's easy to sort of make him the bad guy, me a good guy in that picture. But the reality is it's, we're both coming from different places. Yeah. He was doing the best he could with his worldview. Yeah. And part of what, those of us who maybe have a broader perspective on this part of what we have to get better at is meeting those people where they are too, right? I mean, we yeah. have to sort of meet meet them in their culture, just like we have to meet the Cree elders in their culture, if we're going to effectively connect and communicate. And um, yeah. it's so easy to, to and, and this is what I see a lot of today is that You know, we're willing to sort of expand our comfort zone in one direction, but not the other. And uh, I think that if we are honest about it, kind of like you're pointing out, Jessica, that, you know, he deserves the same question about what happened to you that we're asking of them. And
0: yeah, yeah well it goes back to schools right and we were talking about that again steve 30 years before learning about anything about how the brain functions and processes and he was doing the best he, he knew he was doing a great job for 30 years but that's the narrative of a lot of our teachers that they work within the confines that they have and they do the best that they can um and yeah and i guess i'm i'm actually realizing that we didn't even talk about or introduce your new book so you oh, have a new book coming out yay <laughs> Um, (laughs) yeah, congratulations, but there's a character that comes back up into your book. Um, and one of the books that we talk quite a bit about before is the boy who's raised as a dog and you bring in this character, mama P. Um, and I think, you know, her as a illustration of understanding that people are doing the best that they can is one of the most beautiful things that I love about that book. And I'm glad that she's in the new one because you highlight that again about this intentionality parents. Are gonna raise kids how they were raised. Teachers are gonna fall into this, and so that story that you just shared is like he—he he was doing what he knew. You
1: know? yeah Yeah.
0: It's—it's it's really interesting.
1: Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you like. I mean, I literally could write a whole book about Mama P's stories. She, I mean, maybe I should. Maybe I should do should. like
0: I think I that would the, be the, the, most, the Mama P
1: Chronicles. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, spend, I would
0: love it. I spend more time teaching on her character. Than anything else in that book, because yeah. there's there's so many aspects of it that I find intriguing. The first one is the intentionality. Like she just meets these people where they're at, right, and doesn't yeah. assume the worst, which is not the norm for, you know, maybe schools or child welfare or you know whatever entity she's buffing up against. And then on the flip side, she she's like so holistic about it. Yeah, you know, and all these stories. She
1: well, the interesting just take, thing about you know, Mama P is that she's a perfect example of. What happened to you? Mama P ha, is, is basically the way she is from post traumatic wisdom. And uh, uh, so I really should. That's actually, I believe that would make a good book. That would make a great book. It, it, tell mean, the Mama P's story, you know? Yeah.
2: Yep. And, and that term you just used is a big part of your book. I, I mean, a really crucial part of the book, I thought um, post traumatic wisdom. I'd like to just hear a little more.
1: You know, I it, one of the things that um, we're trying to talk about in the book. It, it, we we want to be hopeful about the fact that bad things can happen to people, and bad things will happen to people, and that uh, that's it's not the end. You know, that there are ways and that people learn to carry the pain and carry it in ways uh, that can ultimately. Lead to them coming to a place where they feel safer, where they have more uh, opportunity for reflection, and and when that happens, not everybody, but a lot of people develop this form of wisdom that you cannot get any other way. I mean, you just—it's very difficult to get that. I don't even think it's possible to to be wise unless you've sort of walked side by side with pain for a while, Mm -hmm. and. But when that does happen and you come to that point of safety and then you can look back, these people are, by and large, much more empathic and, and as they reach back to help other people along the way. And I just think they're amazing people. You, know, you, you see this, you know, you, you'll, you'll read about people like Maya Angelou or, or even Oprah, you know, or, yeah. you know, Nelson Mandela. And there are many, many, many examples of people, you know, Elie Bissell. People who have had really horrific, challenging things happen, but they become wise. And they, and they are much more in touch with sort of this broader humanity, that sort of the broader goodness of us uh, than I think a lot of us tend to be when we get caught up in the frenzy of our, in the inertia of a busy, busy life. So, Will, will we have post-COVID wisdom? Well, I I think, you know what, I just got off a call right before this where a bunch of corporate leaders were having a conversation about that. I mean, how do we reflect on this last year and identify elements of the experience that should be preserved and um, integrated into the transition to the new normal? And the wisdom part, I think, remains to be seen. I do think that there'll be post-COVID growth. You know, there'll be changes. Whether or not uh, individuals and organizations become wise about it, I think it's going to take a little bit of time to see. I think the potential is absolutely there. And again, one of the great things about challenges is that, you know, you either kind of Unravel or you get back, you can get better. I mean, it's not very, you don't stay the same. And so I think that a lot of people are going to be better for this. But I also know that a lot of our really vulnerable families are struggling and are going to continue to struggle. So,
0: yeah, can you? I want to kind of stick with this. And you've talked about this word dissociation, I think, twice, right? You talked about in the context of even in your childhood, mm-hmm. you did a lot of reading, like that was kind of a form of regulation. Can you talk a little bit more about like, when you say dissociation, because what, what that means, I don't know if a lot of our listeners know that. And I think, you know, what Greener and I are talking a lot about these days is, you know, we're seeing a lot more adults engage in dissociative uh, patterns, like our teachers, right, our parents right. and our students. And I think that that's going to have some pretty long lasting implications in the next couple of years if we don't really begin to understand of like, what what are we seeing here? What are we experiencing?
1: Right. So... Probably everybody listening has heard of the fight or flight response, which is which is the label we give to a a form of response to stress or threat that mobilizes you and ha- you know your physiology prepares you to either fight off or run away from the threat. And when that happens, your mental state, your focus is external. You're focusing on the external world and wherever that threat is coming from. Now, there are times when you are in an inescapable, unavoidably distressing or painful situation. And that strategy won't be protective. It's not a good adaptation. So your body will change the way it adapts to uh, that threat and it will use, it will recruit um, the physiological responses and the cognitive states that will disengage from the outside world and will increasingly allow you to spend time in your inner world. And now, that, that cognitive process of sort of disengaging from the external world and sort of, that's normal. We do that every day. We kind of daydream or we process what is this person talking about? Or we think we just kind of let our mind drift when we're sitting in public transportation or something. And that, that's, a, that's, part, that's a dissociative uh, step or it's a step into that dissociative continuum. And it's normal. Just like it's a step into the fight or flight continuum for us when we hear a loud noise in, in you know, somebody drops a, gla- a glass in a restaurant, <clears throat> we pay, pay attention and focus on the glass. That, that's, that, that, that activation of arousal is completely normal. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we have both of these things that we can use depending upon the circumstances. I think that because the pandemic has created so much uncontrollable, unavoidable distress that more and more people are being forced to use this sort of disengaging, dissociative adaptation. Um, And and when you use anything more and more in in a repetitive way, your brain will change And and begin to have a preference for that style of coping. It's sort of like, you know, it it becomes more of a default response to challenge as opposed to something that you recruit only when you are in these really challenging, inescapable situations. So we're going to, you're going to see a lot more kids who at, first of all, at baseline, they're going to be more robotic. They're going to be more zombie-like. They're going to be more. There's going to be more of the appearance of compl- compliance, but they're not going to be processing cognitively very efficiently.
0: Well, I'm glad that you bring that up. I th- I think it was just this focus on, and I'm sure everyone's heard yeah. it. right, This anxiety around the learning loss is just like mind-boggling to me because I'm like, they're gonna we're gonna miss the boat. We're actually gonna have more learning loss. Right if we don't come back from this in a way that makes sense, that's focused on regulation, and that teaches our teachers about dissociative patterns, we're gonna have more learning loss the next two years than we saw during the pandemic.
1: I, I, I couldn't agree more. I actually think that the, the biggest transitional mistake that we can make, either in transition back to the corporate workplace or whatever work or into the educational environment is to <clears throat> have the fantasy that you can resume the same rate of cognitive activity you just can't um, it's going to take time and if we the and as you point out the irony is the more we focus on that the more we're going to push people deeper into this regulatory disengagement and and so we won't get anywhere near as far as we could if we take our foot off the gas pedal
0: yeah yeah it's going it's going to be
1: Interesting to watch. I mean, it, that was one of the worst. You've got a car that's that's really got a stressed engine, right? And and you know it's losing oil. And if you put if you gun it, and say we're we're behind, we got to you know we got to catch up. You're basically going to break down after a couple of miles. But if you go four miles an hour, five miles an hour, and keep your emergency blinkers on, you'll plug along and plug along, and you're going to get ten miles. You know, you'll get to the ten mile mark before you would if you put your foot on the gas. And right now, you just have to recognize: listen, our, our engine is—we don't—it hasn't been. We haven't changed our oil. You know, we've got—you know—all kinds of other stuff in our engine are just fragile. You know, the the belts are fraying. If we try to go too hard, it's just going to blow up. We're going to have a bunch of cars by the side of the road with, you know, the radiators open and steam coming out.
0: I think I heard you say recently, like we're, we're low on gas.
1: Like, yeah. the, ga-
0: the gas light is
1: on. Yeah. Grainer,
0: yeah. Grainer go
2: ahead. What yeah. were you going to say? Well, I, I just, just for all of our teacher listeners, um, after my 30 years of teaching and then attending the, the training, it was dissociation was clearly the piece I missed. <laughs> I mean, I, I had no clue. And I just want to, you know, encourage our teachers, once I understood that concept even a little bit and started to recognize it in kids I had missed for 30 years, I think I had missed mm-hmm. certain signs that obviously they were dissociating 30 years ago when I started teaching, they were and, and always did. But what a, what a difference that made in my understanding of allowing kids to, to daydream or allowing kids to doodle or allowing kids to almost seem like they're not paying attention when in reality, I think they really were as much as they could. Um, So if there's anything more to say about teachers understanding of what they will see in regards to dissociation, I I would love to hear it. Although (laughs) I think your metaphor really covered it pretty well.
1: Well, I, I think dissociation is missed by the mental health field as well. I mean, I, it, it, these kids are and adults tend to be the most misunderstood um, and misdiagnosed. A lot of people who have, have clinically significant dissociative problems <clears throat> will have physical health symptoms that are more prominent than their mental health challenges, right so they'll they'll have headaches or they'll have uh, abdominal pains that they can't work up. They, they can never figure out what it is. Uh, they may have uh, syncope, which is fainting, and they'll go into the health, mental health, excuse me, they'll go to the, to the healthcare system and um, they'll get a workup and the physicians will think that they're malingering or that they are they have some, you know, it's all in their head. You know, and, and well, and in some ways it is, but, you know, that sort of pejorative dismissing of somebody who's got these legitimate symptoms is something that happens all the time with those kids. So um,
0: so I want to kind of end kind of bringing this like looping back to your story. And so I think one of the things that we talk about quite a bit in this podcast and that I hear you say all the time, right, that like the currency, the buffer against adversity, right, the currency to help students regulate their dissociate or more maybe on the arousal side are relationships. Yep um and so i'd like to kind of just end with that because i think you know one of the things that i'm afraid of is that we might not have that strength and foundation of kids that we're used to seeing of intrinsic reward right of like there is this pleasure sensation of engaging in relationships that we've experienced because covid right it's it's kind of taken that right. away right. so i'm wondering what are things that we can be doing to focus on that um, because I'm afraid that we're going to throw a lot of extrinsic at these kids, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, levels and points, and it's just not going to, it's not going to help us. And so I don't know if you have any ideas or kind of what comes to mind about why the relationship is so important to get us back to learning.
1: Well, first of all, you know, you're spot on about the relationship. It's all, it, what we know about how human beings are, are, organized is that we, we really are meant to be in group. You know, we're meant to be part of a group. and And when you feel as if you belong, when you're around people who are sending you signals that you belong, that we care for you, you are better regulated and you feel all kinds of reward that helps counterbalance any tendency to seek un- <clears throat> unhealthy forms of reward. The challenge is that what you the question you ask me is that is the implicit comment is that the teachers are ready to do that that it's the teachers that have to set up this relational milieu and I think again it, it, part of going slow in the transition back to schools is that we really have to remember the appropriate sequence of engagement mm-hmm. <laughs> for individuals. But then the sequence of engagement for organizations, the sequence of engagement for a group is that the leader has to be, they have to be the first people that you regulate. Mm -hmm. And if we take Mm -hmm. care of the teachers, all of that relational stuff is just going to fall out of that. But if we put more pressure on the educators uh, to catch up, to do this, even if we put pressure on them that they build relationships, (laughs) like, ah. But if we help them feel respected and regulated, give them opportunities for uh, essentially a reset and reflection, if we give, say, listen, rather than rushing back to school, let's, you go get regulated, let's do a reset, and then I want your thoughts uh, collectively. How are we going to make this better? How are we going to learn from what we did? Now, if we do that, that, relational stuff is just going to emerge from that cuz all teachers recognize the power of relationships even if they do contingency based program stuff that they know they've seen the power of relationships they failed this small group over here who they've tried to sort of manage behaviorally but most of these other kids that they're interacting with that are doing well they've used their currency has been relationships um, so that's my piece of advice and it really isn't necessarily targeted at the teachers, it's targeted at the administrators. I mean, our leaders have to literally, it, we need to help them do this well. And I, I can—I think that there will be places that do this well, but I think most places are not going to do it well. I think most places are going to miss the opportunity that this pandemic poses to yeah. make a new better. Yeah, well,
0: that's a good reminder. And it's, I'm actually... Uh, in a school district right now at a school working with them and I just had that conversation so I don't even know why I didn't think about that of like the the, the principal it's just something you'd think is so simple but she's now taking 30 minutes a day to leave the building and walk around the neighborhood create that space for her staff right but that's a Perfect. beautiful example beautiful example yeah. um all right well Dr. Perry I can't thank you enough for for joining us a um, pleasure I will, I will, for formality reasons, uh, state the title of the new book coming out. I think it's at the end. It's on the 27th. I don't remember kind of its release yeah. date. Um, but it's called What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. It's phenomenal. I actually really like the format, kind of that back and forth, um, serve and return. I think it's, it brings this currency to life of relationships. And so um, you co-authored it with Oprah. And I think the two of you did a phenomenal job. Um, and I'm glad that we just gave you another book to write the Chronicles of
1: Mama. I know I'm actually, I, I, I love that because I hadn't, I, it would make a great book.
0: It would make a great book. So you're welcome for that. Um, um, Yeah. And just thank you for the work that you're doing. I I hope Um, that you understand the influence that you're having on our students and our teachers. Um, It's phenomenal. So thank you for everything that you've done for us. Well,
1: I just wanted to return the thanks. Thank, you know, you guys are doing all of the heavy lifting and and helping these schools and helping teachers and and leaders in education. So I just pop in every once in a while and say, (laughs) do that. (laughs) What he said, do that.
2: Right, right, right. (laughs) And no one listening to this podcast is going to actually
1: believe that. No, no, I'm telling you, it's true. I, I you're it, you're
2: it, one of the hardest workers I know.
1: Absolutely. Well, I do work hard, but I I'm working hard to get to the point where I can actually just phone it in. <laughs> <laughs> well
2: played. Well played. I, I hope so. I always worry that my good friend is going to get consumed. And, uh, oh, I'll tell
1: you I what, buddy. I've, tre- I've been treading water this last two weeks, and I'm I'm just keeping my nose above the water. I feel like. I'm waiting for like, it's gotta, I know there's a ship coming. I know there's a ship
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, the ship is coming. It's almost here.
1: I know it's coming. <laughs>
2: uh, anyway, thank uh, you for joining us. This was, this was phenomenal.
1: Thanks. Keep up the good it. work guys. I love you. Love you,
2: love you too. And uh, we'll, we'll talk.
1: <laughs> All right. See ya.
0: Hey everyone. We hope you enjoyed episode eight. It's Pfeiffer here. Uh, I have Jamie with me. Say hi, Jamie. Hi. Um, Episode eight. We really like that. I actually listened to it twice before we released it. There was just so many golden nuggets in it. Um, But honestly, I feel like there's a lot of golden nuggets in all of our episodes. So here's what we're going to be doing. We have collaborated with Topo Designs, which is based in Denver, Colorado, and happens to be one of my all-time favorite places to shop, uh, to create a bag to give out to y'all as our listeners. Right, Jamie? Right. She's over there. I feel like we're doing like, what movie scene is that from Annie? Burt Healy? You don't know that. She doesn't know that. I know Annie. Annie? Such a good musical. Anyway, so we are going to walk you through how you can enter to win this topo design backpack. So step one, Jamie, here we go.
1: Please leave a comment on
0: our Instagram at intricate roots under Dr. Perry's photo about your favorite part of this episode. Step two. Add Dr. Perry's post onto your story. Last but not least, step three. For an additional entry, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. And surprisingly, Jessica and I did not rehearse this at all. I know. Can you tell? (laughs) Anyway, again, thank you all for listening. We really appreciate your time. And we got more episodes coming up. We will announce the winner on episode 10, 10, which is our next reflective dissociation session. Yes. All right, y'all take care of yourselves. Thank you.